Alexis Dion. And I'm Chelsea. And we're the co-hosts of High Priority, a podcast where we ask industry experts the tough questions about the past, present, and future of the cannabis industry. Welcome, everyone, to High Priority. Um, This week, we are going into like a bit of a deep dive into a topic that, as PR professionals, we encounter a lot, and that's just the variance of like the terms for the word cannabis right so i don't know about you alexis but i see like the word like weed marijuana ganja like every like word in between used and i think that just got us thinking like where did all these words come from and i think you know just to start off like where did the term cannabis come from and how did it even get to the u.s you know no, that's that's really, you know, an interesting topic, too. And I think for me, it's just so funny to just hear the the, the various words and and the, from the people that, you know, the the words are coming from. Right. So, like, I feel like older people um, will tend to say at least the older people in my life uh, will say uh, ganja or hmm. weed Um or um, what's what, what's another one? I, I feel like I've heard Reefer. Mary Jane. Reefer. Reefer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Reefer is a is an old folks term. I feel like it's a very like boomer term. But, what's your favorite? Um, I mean, I I colloquially say weed a lot. I feel like cannabis is like the industry standard. Yeah. So, like, to be professional, I use it. You know. Um, I only used but, cannabis once I started working at Matteo. I never said the word cannabis before then. Yeah, I know. I know. So. I think, um, you know, and I think it's also really interesting and with a lot of reporters that we talk to, they use the word marijuana like very frequently. It's almost like like you see it in the New York Times, like they even call it marijuana, even though like that's not like the official term. And, you know, New York just passed um, the bill, like their like recreational legalization bill. And, you know, marijuana is like the first word in there. So um, all of that got us thinking where did this word come from? And we found um, kind of an expert in this field. His name is Professor Isaac Campos. Uh, he is an associate professor at the University of Cincinnati, and he actually specializes in the history of illicit drug use in modern Mexico. Um, so, Very yeah, exciting. what I know, yeah. So, like, Alexis, what do you what do you hope to get out of this conversation? I honestly want to hear more about how some of these words became more racialized because in mm-hmm. you know in the past I've heard that like the word marijuana is is a racist term um I've heard mm-hmm. that like Americans even like change the spelling of the original spelling yeah. of marijuana to look more quote unquote Spanish um because I heard like the original mm-hmm. spelling is like M A R um, I I think U-A-N-A and then they like added the J or something. I don't know if that's like factually huh. correct, but that's what I heard. Like they yeah. added the J Americans, like the government added the J to make it look more Spanish or Mexican um, so that yeah. it would come off like, oh, it's just like really bad illicit drug from Mexico and like Americans should be, a, you know, aware of it and yada, yada, yada. So like, I'm just intrigued to hear if that really is the case and are there other Mm -hmm. words that we should probably stop using because it may have uh negative connotations 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think because he's like a historian, it, it almost feels like he will have kind of this like holistic, almost like unbiased, not that history is ever unbiased, sure. but you know, I think he'll have more of just like, he'll be able to contextualize it more. And I think that's what we need. I think like, as you know, prohibition is ending, um, we're just getting so many messages about like where it started and like how it came to be like, you know, like, of course, there's also always like this racial component to the war on drugs. But I think his insight, you know, you know, he studied it for most of his academic career. I think that will be so helpful to help us understand, like, all of the factors in play. Right. Definitely. Um, behind the word prohibition. Also, um, you know, because he's an expert in Mexico as well, just like how, you know, attitudes around cannabis in Mexico, like, have influenced like you know attitudes in america so on and so forth so i think this will be a very very interesting conversation i think we're gonna learn a lot i'm excited let's get started welcome um, professor campos so before we uh, jump in can you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit more about your background why did you choose to focus on your research on modern mexico and the history of drugs and how long have you been um, studying this field for uh sure so my name is isaac campos i've um, been studying the history of uh, illicit drugs for gosh about 20 years now um I wrote a book that came out in 2012 called uh, Homegrown Marijuana and the Origins of Mexico's War on Drugs, which looks at the history of marijuana in Mexico down to its national prohibition in uh, 1920. And uh, I got interested in the topic because I was really interested in general in the war on drugs. And um, I was in graduate school and uh, trying to figure out a a good topic. And um, the story of a, a topic in particular that would deal with drugs in both Mexico and the U.S., and the story of marijuana, every time I read about it, Mexican immigrants had supposedly played a major role in it. But I noticed when I read that literature that hardly anybody had really studied the history of marijuana, either among Mexican immigrants in the U.S. or among Mexicans in Mexico. So um, so that started me down the road to studying marijuana's history of Mexico. And um, and that got, my, got me started. Wow, that's exciting. So how do your students um, kind of take to the, the way you present um, the information about Mexico and legalization? Because I know you're a professor at um, the University of Cincinnati. That's right, yeah. Um, well, you know, students, you might not be shocked to know, are really interested in drug classes. So um, my <laughs> courses enroll very well. Students um, are really excited to learn about the history of drugs. And, um, you know, I find that most students don't know very much, uh, you know, about the topic. If they know something, it's often kind of internet rumor sort of stuff more than actual history. And actually, we have quite a lot of really good, rigorous uh, scholarship on the history of uh, drugs and, you know, not only in the U.S. and Mexico, but around the world now. So uh, students genuinely really get uh, fascinated by the topic because it's genuinely fascinating. And um and uh, and yeah, so it's a it's a good thing to have in my pocket, I suppose, to have something that people actually want to learn about. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's, that's what would, true. Yeah, what would you say are like two key takeaways from your class that your students, um, you know, often learn that they may not have known before enrolling? 
Oh gosh. Uh, well, that there's a, I teach a few, a few different drug classes, but I suppose um, one of the big things that I really emphasize in my biggest kind of highest enrolling lower level drugs class is the importance of set and setting in the outcomes that people experience when they take drugs. So mm-hmm. I, um, I always assign a book by Richard de Grand Prix called The Cult of Pharmacology, which is um, a book that criticizes what he calls uh, pharmacologicalism, or so the idea that drugs are either good or bad, and that drugs have certain chemistry that interacts with your brain a certain way and then produce consistent outcomes. And what he, he shows in that book and what a lot of other research does as well, though I think his book is the best one to kind of synthesize all the neuroscience on this and other um, kinds of work, behavioral psychology studies, that kind of thing, is that um, you know the outcomes that we experience when we take drugs are dictated not only by the pharmacology of the drug, but also by our psychology and by the setting in which we take the drug. And this was a major theme of my book on marijuana in Mexico as well. So the cultural setting of drug use has a huge impact on how drugs actually uh, affect us and how we respond to drugs. And of course, I think most people know this kind of intuitively if you point it out to them. So the example I always give, I should probably think of a different example because I always give the same one. But the example I always give is you know, my, my, the history department where I teach is right across the street from a bunch of frat houses. And, you know, you could take the same amount of alcohol and plant it in that frat house and plant it in my department, you know, faculty lounge um, across the street. And of course you would get wildly different outcomes from the same exact same alcohol taken in the same quantities. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And that of course has to do with you know, the psychology of the users and the setting of the use and not only what we expect to happen, but what we kind of want to happen as well. And, um, and I think students, you know, I think most people recognize that kind of intuitively, but they don't realize that this also affects, you know, the drugs that we think about, whether we're talking about marijuana or we're talking about heroin or cocaine. Um, uh, this, uh, this is an important matter in all drugs. So that's something that I always try. I, I basically try to get students to understand that the history of drugs and the, our everyday experience with drugs is usually a lot more complex than people make it out to be. And uh, people try to make it out to be that, you know, this drug is good or that drug is bad. And it's, um, it's much more complicated than that. Well, speaking of complications, um, we have been very confused in terms of what words to use? What what words to, to stay away from because they draw negative connotation, um, or you know what what word is like politically correct or whatnot? So, the word marijuana is now obviously widely used by Americans, often as a, a official term for the plant. But of course, this wasn't always the case before prohibition in the U.S. So, can you help us understand how marijuana? made it to the American lexicon? Sure. You know, I get asked about this all the time. I just did actually a couple of other interviews where I got asked about this as well. And I think it's a major concern uh, in particularly in the cannabis industry. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's much of a concern to scholars, but um, well, that's, that's actually not true. I, um, there's a, a new book. I don't totally, I don't really agree with the conclusions on this question, but um, it's worth, you know, if your listeners are interested in this, they should check it out. There's a geographer at the University of New Mexico by the name of Chris Duval, and he wrote a book about the African origins of marijuana. And he argues that marijuana is actually an African term. Mm-hmm. Um, I, he, I don't find his argument convincing because now again, we're from different fields and um, 
the earliest references to cannabis using the word marijuana appear in Mexico, uh, by far the earliest in the, in the 1840s. And um, in Mexico, there's no no tangible signs of African influence in this history. Uh, it could be true because we really don't know where the word comes from in Mexico. We have some theories, but we don't really know. Um, so that's worth thinking about. But I can. But as far as the Mexican side of it goes, the word appears for the first time in Mexico. Um, in a source that was published in 1846, it actually was completed in 1842, but didn't get hit the you know the streets until 1846. And um, it's a uh, it's simply the Mexican word for cannabis. Um, the thing is, though, in Mexico, marijuana had a really wicked reputation almost from the very beginning of its history. There, it was associated overwhelmingly with madness and with violence, mm-hmm. and so. Um, that history was pretty well developed by the time the word came into the U.S. Um, and it came beginning in the 1890s um, through essentially informal media channels. So through the Associated Press and through the wire service where newspaper stories from Mexico started being published in the U.S. all around the country. Um, and those stories brought with them the typical Mexican ideas about marijuana. That is that marijuana caused madness and violence. A typical story would be, you know, a guy took a few puffs from a marijuana cigarette and then, you know, became raving mad and took out a knife and killed his friend or something like that. Um, And so those stories start to circulate in the U S in the 1890s. And uh, by the 1910s, I'm actually in the middle of a really big study right now. We're studying the evolution of cannabis terminology, um, as a means of understanding the development of ideas about marijuana. And um, what we've seen, the evidence, our data, we're still at the preliminary data stage. So this is not like a final ruling, but this is what it looks like so far, is that in 1910, the most common word for intoxicant cannabis in the U.S. was hashish. But by 19, the end of 1919, it was marijuana already. So this flies in the face of a lot of theories out there, particularly in the industry, um, that, you know, suddenly the word marijuana started being used by the federal government in the 1930s just to um, to demonize cannabis. Um, and, and it wasn't very well known before then. This derives, as far as I know, I think the first person to make this argument was the activist Jack Herrera in, um, in his book, The Emperor Wears No Clothes in the 1980s. Uh, hemp in the marijuana conspiracy, which is a kind of conspiracy theory to explain marijuana's prohibition. But I think um, Herrera was... Uh, well, I don't think I know Herrera is wrong about that because the word had been in circulation for decades by then. And um, and like I said, what we're finding is that by the end of the 1910s, it was really well known. Um, and uh, again, though, it came with a couple things that were important. One, these ne- super negative connotations that came from Mexico. Now, cannabis already had a somewhat controversial reputation in the U.S. Um, the word hashish already had, you know, associated cannabis with the so-called Orient and um and uh, artificial paradises and dreams and unreality. And in our study, what we're finding is when the word hashish is used overwhelmingly, it's associated with dreams and unreality and a kind of, you know, uh, sometimes mental illness, not so much violence. So marijuana came with a kind of furious madness, as they would say in Mexico. Um, So that's one thing. And then the other thing is um, the thing that really, I think that was probably comes from Mexico, we don't have very good evidence of this, but it probably comes from Mexico, is the smoking of marijuana and cigarettes. This was known in other places, but this was the one way that cannabis was taken as an intoxicant in Mexico in the 19th century. We have some evidence of um, 
of edible use in the 18th century, but it's, you know, 99% smoking and cigarettes. And when cannabis starts to become more popular in the U.S., it starts to be used more widely. It's generally used in that way. Um, and I think that's actually that technological shift is actually really critical because in the 19th century, people were taking these big edible doses of hashish and they were often having very strong reactions, overdoses essentially. And um, so they would tell these stories. Sometimes they would describe these like amazing visions they had, you know, that they were like floating down a, you know, a tropical river and seeing, you know, translucent butterflies and this sort of thing. Um, but usually those stories ended with them like in terror and having like a panic attack. <laughs> sure. So I think that people smoking um, and cigarettes actually became very important because it allowed people to, to measure their doses better. And so anyway, those are the two big Mexican influences, I think, in this story. And um, that's how we get the word marijuana starts to circulate in the U.S. Hmm, that's such an interesting background. And again, we had no idea that, you know, it had that um, legacy picking, being picked up by the newswires. And it's actually quite ironic that now we work in PR and are working with news to kind of undo those harms, right, that were perpetuated um, like over a century ago. So building off of your point on, I guess, how um, regulators co-opted the term marijuana later as a political tool, would you say there is like some merit to that? I know you said that Jack Herrera's argument isn't exactly true anymore, but um, we've also read that I think prohibition was also starting when there was also a lot of immigration happening um, and, you know, you know, the war on drugs also has like massive racial implications. So can you speak on that as well? Yeah, well, certainly the fact that, um, you know, marijuana was associated with Mexico, um, certainly I'm sure, you know, played a role and it. it made it easier to demonize certainly. Um, just the fact that it wasn't widely used here and it was associated with minorities certainly helped. And this, this is, of course, a, a, a typical story in the history of uh, illicit drugs, when drugs are associated with foreign groups. Um, and this is not just in the U.S. either. This is in Mexico, for example. Smoking opium was highly demonized because it was associated with Chinese immigrants, for example. Mm. Um, um, so to an extent, that's true. But remember, that cannabis was um, the main term used for cannabis prior to the 1910s was hashish, which was also a foreign word. Right. And right. and so that exotic background, I think it play, I you know, I think it actually is a kind of double edged sword for a drug's reputation. I think that for some people that made it attractive and exciting. Right. And if you read these 19th century um, reports of people experimenting with hashish, most of them, most of the stories you'll find on hashish around the turn of the century are from fiction, actually. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they describe this like exotic kind of exciting thing that produced these amazing effects for, you know, there's two, there's two ways to read that. <laughs> and one way is to be repulsed by that. The other way is to be excited by that and want to take the drug. And, um, and, you know, I think that the, the advent of widespread marijuana use during the 1960s by the counterculture was actually um, kind of of this latter category, which is that the, because the drug was called marijuana because it was associated with Mexico and with the, you know, the Orient. And for your listeners, I'm making little scare quotes when I use the word Orient here, but I'm referring to the way that non-Westerners were stereotyped um, in the West during the 19th, 18th, 19th, and 20th century. Um, because it was associated with the non-West, it was, 
you know, kind of literally countercultural in the United States. And that I think made it attractive to the emerging counterculture. So, um, so I think the story is much more complicated. And I certainly don't think that the that government officials made a conscious effort to start using the word marijuana. By the 1930s, the word marijuana was a common term in the United States for intoxicant cannabis smoked in cigarettes. That was, um, so there wasn't like a conspiracy to start using that word. And I don't think it's a um, racist word either. It's just a Mexican word. Um, now, was there racism towards uh, Mexicans who smoked marijuana, yes, but you know, Mexican was essentially a racist word in the early 20th century as well. People just saying Mexican would say that in a very kind of racist and um, and pejorative way, right? He's a Mexican, yeah. um, right? So I I just don't I don't think that the word is racist, and I don't think it's um, I don't think there's anybody should have any problem using it any more than anybody should have a problem using the word salsa for a certain kind of sauce that we associate with tacos. Salsa just means sauce in Spanish. But um, in the United States, we know it as a certain kind of sauce because we've got to know it from tacos and burritos and that kind of thing. Um, and that's just the way the word evolved here. And it just shows Mexican influence in the US and Mexican influence has been really um, rich here in the United States in lots of different ways. So again, I don't think it's racist and I don't think there was a conspiracy. Um, though I do agree with you that the association, certainly the association with Mexico didn't do the reputation of cannabis any favors in the early 20th century, when, of course, the United States was a, um, a very racist country. And, of course, the war on drugs has, of course, played out in, in very racist ways since then. And uh, do you have, I know you talked about hashish being used, like consumed very frequently before prohibition. Can you give us a glimpse into who was actually consuming cannabis back then? Was it more of an upper class thing or was it, you know, did it run the gamut? Yeah. So, well, in the 19th century, I mean, we don't have a really good, uh, a lot of good information on this from the, from the available sources. When you read about hashish experimentation in the 19th century, it tends to be overwhelmingly doctors mm -hmm. um, and um, people who read Orientalist literature. So anybody who might have read the Count of Monte Cristo, for example, might have been interested in taking hashish because hashish was mentioned in that book many times. Or anybody who had read, um, you know, the the Arabian Nights or the Thousand One Nights. Um, th these were the books that really popularized the notion of hashish as being this kind of dream-producing substance. Um, and so, in the 19th century, I do think it was it was more of an upper-class kind of experimental sort of thing. Um, by the early 20th century, it starts to, to move out of those kind of experimental circles. And you see it turning up among kind of the typical groups who were associated with illicit drug use. Um, so we have a really pretty good report in the 1910s along the Texas border. And the um, there was a, it was an investigation by the FDA into, um, or the agricultural department uh, into the use of cannabis along the border. And they talked to dozens of pharmacies because that's what, how people were getting their cannabis then overwhelmingly was you just went to a pharmacy and bought it. Um, and 
um, it really varied from town to town, but overwhelmingly it was people who were kind of considered marginal types. So whether it was um, sometimes some places like El Paso and San Antonio, it was, um, it was most often Mexican buyers, but in other places like Galveston along the Gulf Coast or New Orleans, it was associated with African-Americans. It was associated with um, sporting types, as I said at that time, which is like prostitutes and, um, you know, gamblers and, you know, so um, and one of the theories at the time, which I really suspect was correct, is that people were switching over to cannabis because these other substances were becoming illegal and cannabis was still easy to acquire. So, um, of course, we, you know, alcohol prohibition, of course, comes in 1919. But, you know, by the mid teens, most of the country was already living under alcohol prohibition. And in 1914, you have the Harrison uh, Narcotics Act, which uh, controlled the distribution of cocaine and the opiates. And one of the arguments that the prohibition is that, you know, the general drug prohibitions were making at the time was that people were probably going to start switching to cannabis because it was still available. And so they would argue for the prohibition of cannabis. And I think that's probably what was going on to some extent is that the drug was still available and people started, you know, giving it a try and then they enjoyed it. And so they kept doing it. Um, so that's why we start seeing prohibitions on the state and local levels of cannabis in the 1910s, the earliest being in uh, Massachusetts in 1911. Um, so anyway, so those are generally the demographics. And then, um, you know, and then it evolves from there. And by the 1930s, one of the things that the, the people who, you know, kind of the conspiracy theory about cannabis is prohibition in the 1930s and the, 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 and also the, the theories that overwhelmingly emphasize the racial angle in the 1930s. One of the things they miss about the 1930s is that one of the, probably the main concern in the 30s by the time cannabis was being prohibited in 1937 was the use of cannabis by children. This was the main argument being made that the kids were using it, right? And this is always a super powerful argument in the US. Like we see it over and over again. And this was the argument made in the late 1970s when there was a parents movement that pushed back on decriminalization in the 70s. Their argument was essentially, look, children are using this and this is out of control. And this really put an end to what could have been legalization back in the seventies when, you know, in the late seventies, people oh. thought it was just a matter of time before cannabis would be legalized. And then this parent movement developed. Um, and then in the 19, late 19, there's a, a recent book came out by a, a colleague of mine in the field, Emily Dufton um, called grassroots. And it's about the marijuana legalization movement. And um, she shows how in the late eighties, um, the marijuana legalization movement actually turned this argument on its head and said to the prohibitionists, hey, you're right, children shouldn't be using cannabis, so we should legalize it so that they won't be. And that was like a, a really key shift in this. So that argument about children using has always been really important. And I think people overlook that in the 30s because there's a, you know, people want to make the racist argument. I think a lot of people in the industry want to make the racist argument because it, it delegitimizes prohibition, which, you know, there's lots of reasons to delegitimize prohibition. I don't think you have to to, um, you know, racism was involved, but it wasn't the only thing. Um, so anyway, so it, um, those are kind of your demographics. Wow. Fascinating. That's, uh, there's <laughs> the a lot of interesting, yeah, there's a lot of interesting things in the series, history. That's interesting. Okay. And I mean, obviously you'd already jumped in and, and said that like mar the term marijuana itself isn't quote unquote, like racist, or it's not, it's not a bad term to use, but are there other terms out there that you think that we should stop using um, or terms that are just like maybe too outdated to be using moving forward? 
Uh, I can't think of any. I mean, I like some of the old ones, you know, wacky tobacco. I wish that would come back. Uh, you know, I don't know. They used to say grass. They used to say um, reefer, right? Those are out of fashion, but I don't know. There's nothing wrong with those terms. They're just out of fashion. Um, I find it interesting when journalists use the term, they just say weed, which yeah. I think is such a um, informal term. I always find it funny when journalists use that, but journalists, I've talked to some journalists about this before, and I don't know, they, they feel like that's the term of the day now, so that's what people use. So, you know, I don't, I don't think the terminology really matters that much to people outside the industry. You know, the industry, of course, is really concerned about branding. The industry is really concerned about image and that kind of thing. Um, but you know, the idea that marijuana has all negative connotations, I just think is totally wrong. I, you know, marijuana in the 1960s ends up, it, it's like the symbol, that word is like one of the, I don't know, if you were to make a list of the top 10 words, most likely to be associated with the sixties, you know, with a big S <laughs> marijuana would be one of those words. And for, you know, a lot of people, the 60s has mostly positive connotations, right? This is the era of civil rights. This is the era of, you know, anti-Vietnam protests. And um, so for some people, some people find those things offensive, but I certainly don't. So I don't know why we should stop using the word marijuana, which is a word that people were using at that time. So now I don't, I don't think there's any terms that, uh, that I could think of. I don't know if you may maybe throw one at me, find one, but I don't. Wow. No, that's really good to know. I think it's so funny because most people clearly have gotten the wrong idea of this word and because you know it kind of caught fire in terms of it being like a negative word or whatnot now like everyone thinks that this way so thank you for enlightening us because i don't think we would have known about like the real origins of it if it wasn't you know for talking to you well you know i think um i think there's a number of mythologies that developed in the what's the right word in the drive to reform marijuana laws since the 1970s um this thing about the word marijuana i'm pretty sure it started with jack herrera as i said and um you know hey bless jack herrera's heart he um was super influential inspired a lot of people to fight prohibition and um while i disagree with most of what he argued i'm certainly on board with um with his political position, which was that prohibition was a disaster and, and, um, and that it should be reformed and we should have smarter drug laws. And so, you know, one of the things I find most interesting is I think a lot of these myths, um, you know, they told a distorted story about history they and um in order to i mean i think i don't think they it was in, in order it wasn't like you know a, a conscious effort to distort history i just think that it was activists who were looking for you know to, to bolster their argument um but those distorted arguments about history actually moved history in a positive direction so i'm a historian and like my job is to figure out exactly what the what really happened as far as you know as close as we can get to it anyway um but from a political standpoint, um, I'm glad that those mistruths played a positive role in getting um, these old marijuana laws overturned because way too many people have gone to jail for using marijuana and way too many people are dying of drug related drug, you know, drug war related violence in Mexico because of marijuana prohibition and other drug prohibitions as well. So the fact that those arguments worked out, I think that's great. But, you know, like I said, I'm a professional historian, so my job is to try to set the record straight as much as I can. So I, I actually find those things really fascinating in history when 
mm. when the mythology kind of moves history as much as the reality. And I guess in your experience as a historian and based on all of your research, what would you say were the primary motivators of prohibition? Well, you know, I think what's interesting about marijuana prohibition, what's surprising about it in the early 20th century is that it took so long to happen on the national level. So, mm. you know, the early 20th century is a period of, tr there's tremendous energy to restrict and control intoxicants in the US. Um, you know, we get alcohol prohibition, a drug that was, you know, extremely used extremely widely. There was a huge, a huge lobby of people uh, arguing against alcohol prohibition, massive industries associated with alcohol prohibition. And we still got alcohol prohibition, which is really remarkable. You also have, you know, the opium industry was one of the most lucrative industries in the world in the 19th century. And it essentially gets shut down by the early 20th century by these global prohibitionist movements. So there is a rush to prohibit intoxicants in the early 20th century. And this spanned not only from the ones that got prohibited, but even, you know, you'll find people arguing that we should restrict tobacco and caffeine at that time, because um, tobacco, now we know that that was a good argument, but at the time there wasn't a whole lot of evidence that it was, you know, people didn't know it was causing cancer and that kind of thing. Uh, but people were even saying caffeine, caffeine was driving people wild, you know, and that kind of thing. So um, what, but cannabis, it took a while with cannabis because, and this was really well um, documented a long time ago by um, two law professors, uh, Richard Bonney and Charles Whitebread, who showed that the constitutional restrictions on federal police power in the United States, so Article 10 of the, of the um, Constitution, prevented the federal government from just prohibiting drugs. And that's why the first laws that um, controlled the distribution of opiates and cocaine were tax laws. And that's why the Marijuana Tax Act in 1937 was a tax law as well. But the federal government was worried about prohibiting marijuana prior to that via tax law because it didn't produce very much tax revenue and it didn't have to be imported and it didn't have to be cross state lines. And all these things were things that had been deemed critical to the constitutionality of tax laws that control the distribution of certain substances. So that's essentially why it got held up in its prohibition. Um, you know, since the middle of the 19th century, cannabis had been considered a so-called narcotic in the United States, which in, in this country means a, a potentially dangerous drug with potentially habit-forming qualities. It had that reputation for decades prior to its prohibition in the 30s. Um, so, so the main motivation was that it was an intoxicant and people who wanted intoxicants prohibited wanted it prohibited, I think. Uh, but like I said, you know, the discourses around it were that it caused madness and violence. Those ideas that came both from, uh, you know, kind of Orientalist sources and, and, and especially from Mexico, I think. And also this argument that it was now, you know, spreading to children and we had to control it. I think those were the main motivations. There's a, new, a kind of a recent article that came out that I don't, I don't find convincing at all, but um, that argues that it was also part of the war effort, that there was an effort to monopolize the hemp industry for the war effort. I don't, I don't find that argument particularly. I think that these other arguments are more complicated than they need to be. It's pretty straightforward. It was an intoxicant. It had been seen as a potentially dangerous intoxicant for almost a century during a period when potentially dangerous intoxicants, at least the ones that were being considered so, were being prohibited, even alcohol and even opium, these giant industries. Um, cannabis had almost no 
industrial support. No, you know, it, there was no no marijuana industry to support it. There were there wasn't a major population of marijuana users just to complain. And so, you know, it mm. just wasn't very surprising that it got prohibited. I don't think. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely important to see like a global macro view of the. I guess just the time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was this big global movement to control intoxicants at that time. So, and you know, we see something similar in Mexico. In Mexico, Mexico's biggest drug problem in the early 20th century was alcohol by far. But alcohol is the one drug they didn't prohibit, and the main reason was that they couldn't afford to do it. Mm. Um, so the president mm-hmm. of Mexico, that so Mexico has a revolution between 1910 and 1920. The country is it's a civil war essentially. The country is, um, you know, really. Uh, torn apart by this. And at the end of the teens, Mexico is going about prohibiting these other intoxicants, but the president of Mexico at the time specifically says, um, do something about alcohol, but don't prohibit it because we can't afford it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's usually what happens. Like, can you afford it or can't you afford to prohibit something? Um, but in the early 20th century in the U S the movement became so strong that like everything was, um, yeah. was getting prohibited. So, um, yeah. So I think that's what happened there. And, I guess while we're on the topic of Mexico, and we'd be remiss not to talk about this while we have you, um, you know, the country in March approved a bill to legalize um, cannabis for recreational use. So what impact do you think this will have on attitudes toward um, cannabis in Mexico? Um, And like, will this put pressure on the U.S. to legalize it at a federal level? Just what are your thoughts on it overall? Well, you know, I don't... um... I don't, I'm a historian, of course, so I don't predict the future very well. And I don't know a lot about the, the industry and that kind of thing these days. But um, I presume that gradually cannabis use will expand in Mexico. It's still not that widely used in Mexico. It's less widely used in Mexico than it is here. It's um, It's got a more negative reputation there than it has here. So that fewer people support legalization there than they do here. But it's uh, managed to to um, happen there due to some Supreme Court decisions that forced it on the on the federal government, basically. Um, so I presume we'll see kind of what we've seen here as far as I understand what we've seen here. So as I understand it, the market has expanded into demographics that previously didn't use much cannabis, like a lot of older people. Um, I know that, you know, among, um, you know, I'm in my forties and, um, around a lot of, I know like the, the drug of choice, it seems like lately among like moms is like cannabis gummies, you know, (laughs) this is like a whole new thing that's, uh, developed. Um, so I presume stuff like that's going to happen, that people are going to discover that it's a, it's a, you know, um, that for a lot of people, it's a really pleasant intoxicant and they'll, and you can take it in various ways. You don't have to smoke it and all those things that I think, um, prevented people from using it. I would presume that use will expand there. Will it put pressure on the U.S.? I wouldn't use the word pressure because I don't think that the government in the U.S. really, you know, is going to be influenced too much by what Mexico does. However, I do think, so pressure isn't the right word, but I think you're on the right track there. I think it will make prohibition in the U.S. look even more anomalous than it already does because um, the very large countries on both sides of the United States will now have legal cannabis. And so the U.S. Right. is all of a sudden this anomaly um, with its two NAFTA partners. So I, I wouldn't use pressure, but I think it will certainly, you know, it's going to kind of, I don't know, it, it may have some influence in making people go, look, we're like w- wasting a lot of resources on this. Why do we still have um, yeah. cannabis prohibition? But I, I wouldn't expect the U.S. to prohibit it federally anytime soon just because of the politics of cannabis in the U.S. I think we're going to continue to have state level um 
state level legalizations and kind of this patchwork of laws. I would guess. I mean, again, I mm-hmm. can't see the future. But like I said, the Mexico I don't Mexico wouldn't have legalized federally. I don't think either had it not been forced to. Um, and the politics there are kind of similar. You have a lot of people who are just totally opposed to legalization, and the public there doesn't support it. Um, I mean, forty percent or so does, but it's not a majority still. So. Mm. That's interesting because it's so funny because when you go to like the tourist places um, in Mexico, you would never think that a lot of people have differing attitudes um, on it because it's such a cool thing to do when you go to, to like Cancun or like Tulum or whatever, like people are out there you know, consuming. Oh, yeah, <laughs> they're they're consuming. I mean, I don't go to the tourist destinations, but, um, you know, you occasionally smell it in like Mexico City, but which is where I spend the vast majority of my time when I go. Um, But it's not like here. I have to tell you here in Ohio where it's still illegal, but it's decriminalized. Mm. I can't take a bike ride without getting a contact (laughs) high from cars. Right. And um, which I find interesting that the cops aren't more. I mean, because one thing is, you know, letting people smoke marijuana. Another thing is people like driving down the street, fogging down as oh, they drive. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I and that happens here all the time. Wow. Like all the time. So I find that pretty interesting. I think that's been a real change. When I was growing up, that was not the case. You did not smell marijuana coming out of people's cars all the time. Um, mm-hmm. That was a long time ago, but that was the 80s. But um, anyway, so uh, so I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But I don't think it'll... Um, I don't know. We'll see when federal um, prohibition ends here. I don't know. I, I, it could, I don't know. It could be a surprise too. Who knows? Maybe it comes faster than we think. I certainly totally. wouldn't have guessed. Um, I, I tell this to my students all the time, you know, in the late eighties, early nineties, I wouldn't have guessed that just in, in the less than 20 years, we were going to have legal marijuana breaking out all over the country. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Like, at the height of the war on drugs in 1990 or 94. Yeah. I mean, you never would have guessed that. So, yeah. you know, stuff changes fast. And so who knows? Yeah. I think the industry has definitely undergone a huge rebrand in the U.S. at least. Um, I mean, I think there's definitely more of like, it's more used like in a me- like a medical way, I guess. And so we can see why, you know, that adoption has risen. Um do you think like Mexico would have a similar attitude? Like it would be more like something you would prescribe for like pain. Like, is that like, do you see it going in that direction more? Um, I think probably, you know, medical cannabis has a long history in Mexico and it has never really disappeared. So mm-hmm. when I was studying this stuff in the early 2000s, you know, people would tell me, well, you know, anybody can buy marijuana at one of the traditional, like, um, you know, folk healing markets. If you, if you don't look like a young person who's just looking to get high, if you're like an, like an old lady who's got arthritis, that was a typical topical solution in Mexico is you would put cannabis in um, alcohol and then rub it on your joints for arthritis. And that was really common. I knew a musician kind of vaguely knew a musician who did that and that was the thing that everybody suggested doing so there's that long history there and i think there's a certain i certainly think that there are there's definitely a thing going on there among some people who are trying to again 
kind of grab history and harness history to say that this is like a typical Mexican thing. And so we should be dominating this industry and, um, and we should brand it as a typical Mexican thing and that sort of thing. So I would expect that that kind of thing is going to happen in the, in the market. But, you know, the, um, the thing is with this in, these industries breaking out in like the U S and, and Canada and um, you know, these much richer countries um getting a head start in the industry i suspect as with most industries that um that these multinational cannabis companies will end up gaining a major foothold and really shaping the market that's what i would guess but again i don't know much about how the industry really works so i'm kind of just talking off the you know top of my head here um but um anyway so um but i do think it'll be popular medicinally there's you know there's a big market in mexico for kind of herbal, you know, remedies and that kind of thing. And until cannabis mm-hmm. becomes more mainstream, I think it'll, I think that kind of thing would certainly be compatible with, uh, w- with what's happening in Mexico. Totally understand. Um, yeah, I think all of this info was very helpful. I think a lot of people are probably going to have more questions. Um, and if they do, and um, they want to get in contact with you, what's the best way to do that? Oh, you can just send me an email to my university email address, which is, um, Isaac.campos, C-A-M-P-O-S, at uc.edu, and um, just send me an email. I have a Twitter account, but I almost never look at it. So if you try to reach <laughs> me there, I probably won't um, won't respond. Um, so just send me an email. I'll be happy to talk to people. Great. And our listeners can also buy your book, Homegrown, Marijuana and the Origins of Mexico's War on Drugs, um, anywhere online, right? That's right. That would be great. Help me feed my family. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but it is, uh, I, if they are interested in this history of Mexico, I think you find it quite fascinating. And, um, and uh, it's out there. You can pick that up. Yeah. I mean, we've learned so much just in this past hour or so. Cool. Well, I enjoyed talking to you. It was fun. And, um, you know, let me know if I can help you out any anytime in the future. Awesome. Thank you, Professor. This was really helpful. Thanks again for listening to High Priority. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to Antoine Dry, Donald Edwards, and Jim Pryor from Dirty Soap Entertainment for our intro music. To learn more about our show and parent company, Matteo Communications, head on over to our website at matteo.com. That's M-A-T-T-I-O.com.